There is a fairly common saying in our culture today, and it is this. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. There is a lot of truth in that expression, especially for the child of God. Life is often filled with difficulty and heartache and grief and suffering and trouble. But this isn't anything new. People have always had struggles and sorrows. However, I don't think it would be inaccurate to say that God's people have had more. I say that because God's people have often been the focus of persecution. Not only that, God's people swim upstream. We, we go against the current, against the flow, against the tide. In addition, God often walks His people through trials because He knows how much we can benefit from difficult times. In light of all of this, it should not surprise us that the Word of God has a great deal to say about adversity and trials in life. One of the most well-known passages is found in the opening chapter of the book of James. And I invite you to turn there with me by way of introduction to our text in 1 Peter. Before we look at 1 Peter, we're going to look at James chapter 1. So after the book of Hebrews is the book of James, right before the book of 1 Peter, which is our book of study in these weeks. James chapter 1. Notice the familiar wording that James uses in verse 2. My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He didn't say count it all joy if you fall into trials, but when you fall into trials. It is inevitable that we will experience adversity. Trials are inevitable. Plan on it. It doesn't matter how godly you are. It doesn't matter how closely you are walking with the Lord. None of that exempts you. God allows trials in our lives. God takes us through trials in life. Why? Because trials can refine and strengthen our character. That's what James tells us here in this passage. He says we should count it all joy because the testing of your faith produces endurance. Trials can refine and build and strengthen our character if we respond properly. Sadly, some people go through trials and they come out bitter, angry, resentful, hardened, and even less sensitive to the Lord than they were before. But God has a different plan. God's goal in suffering is to purify us, and to refine us, and to build us, and to mature us. That is why James says here, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's true. Everything James says here is true. But let me hasten to add that even though we know that God uses trials in this way, that doesn't make them easy. That's why James gives us this exhortation. We must make a choice 
We can't wait for our emotions or our feelings to lead us because they won't lead us. Or if they lead us, they often lead us in the wrong direction. That is why James did not say, feel it all joy when you encounter various trials. No, he said, count it or consider it all joy. We have to make a choice that we will count it all joy when we fall into various trials. We may not and probably won't feel like counting it all joy, but that is what we are exhorted to do. And beloved, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we find out if we walk by faith or if we walk by sight. Are we willing to count it all joy? Or are we going to mope around and complain and gripe and murmur and grumble about our trials or in the midst of our trials? Notice that James mentions our motivation to consider it all joy. Verse 3 is the motivation when he says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The reason why we can and the reason why we should consider it all joy is because God uses our trials to shape us and and refine us and mold us and strengthen our character. Now let me hasten to add this thought. If you don't care about the refining and strengthening of your character... And I say this because some might be hearing these words and say, well, you know, I really don't want that. I I, I don't really care about it. That's not that big of a deal. I'd rather have comfort and ease. So if you don't care about the refining and strengthening of your character, then you have a deeper problem. You need to ask the Father to give you the desire for what is really important in life, and that is being like His Son. Central to being a Christian is the desire to grow and develop and mature and be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our motivation to consider it all joy. But even when we do have that motivation, even when that desire is present, please hear this, that doesn't mean that it's easy to walk through various trials, especially if they are long and or severe. This might be a good time to pause and give an important caution. If you have a friend or a loved one going through a deep and difficult trial, that is probably not the best time to quote this passage to that person. I doubt that James himself would approve of you using his words in that way at that time because these verses would probably feel like a club or a whip at a time like that. Sensitivity and timing are critical when we are trying to encourage and to be a support to someone who is going through a trial. Again, I say especially if it's deep, severe, or long Dr. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary on James, put it this way, quote, It is misleading to use James 1 as the first word in grief counseling. 
When Jesus met Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus died, he did not say, God has a purpose in this, even though he knew God did have a purpose in it. First he comforted them, then he wept with them. To use James for grief counseling is to miss its primary intent, end quote. That's a very good, healthy caution. You see, when James writes these words, he is addressing more than the hour or crisis of sorrow. He is writing these words so we will embrace this perspective in all of life, and that will make us better prepared when the trials do come. James wants us to have a mindset of spiritual growth, a mindset of maturity, not just an incident-related mindset, a total mindset of growth and maturity. That should be central to us. That should be in the forefront of our thinking. That is how we should view life as a whole, not just the trials of life. We should want to grow and mature and develop in our character, deepen in our walk with Christ. And so James says in verse 4, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. The word translated patience in my version is also translated perseverance or endurance. James is not, here's the important point to understand, James is not merely talking about patience as in not losing your temper when you're caught in a traffic jam. James is talking about a character quality. A character quality of perseverance and endurance through all the seasons of life, through all the difficulties of life, through all the trials of life. He is describing the person who faithfully walks with the Lord come what may. He has in mind the kind of Christian who is solid and unwavering. The kind of person that Jesus wanted Peter to become when he changed his name from Simon to Peter, reminding him that he wanted him to be solid and firm like a rock. As a pastor, James had seen many Christians who were on track for a while, doing well for a while, but then they they get sidetracked. That falls short of what God desires for his children. The Christian life, beloved, I remind you, is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not a 100-yard dash, not a 100-meter sprint. It's a marathon. Far too many Christians run well for a while, but then they fade, they fizzle, they fall to the side. It's a marathon. God's desire for us is to be firm and steadfast in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we will always be on an emotional high, and it doesn't mean that there won't be times of discouragement. What it does mean is that we don't live our lives based on our emotional ups and downs. Maturity means that we don't live our lives by our emotions. Maturity means that we don't allow the times of discouragement to get us off track. We are able to continue on through our times of discouragement. We're able to push through because we have the character quality James mentions here in verse 4, the quality of 
perseverance or endurance. That's what James is talking about here in verse 4. You know, the very fact that James gives us this exhortation is a reminder to us that trials do not automatically make us better. As I've said many times in the past, some Christians go through trials and they come out better. Other Christians go through trials and they come out bitter. So be careful. Guard your heart. We have to have the right response. We have to have the right perspective. James gives us both. The right response is to count it all joy. And the right perspective is knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That is God's goal for us, and it should be our goal as well. Our goal in our trials should not be able to get an answer to the question, why? Our goal should be to persevere through the trial, to endure the trial in a way that is pleasing to our Lord. Instead of asking why or demanding an answer from the Lord, we should ask for the wisdom to walk through the trial in a way that honors the Lord. That's why James adds verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Please notice something very important about this verse. James does not tell us to ask for knowledge. He asks us to ask for wisdom. And in this context, there is a huge difference. When we go through trials, we often want the knowledge of why this is happening and what God is doing and why God is allowing this. Here are the kind of questions that we naturally ask. Whose fault is this? Is this the result of satanic opposition? Is this a random consequence of living in a fallen world? Those are the wrong kinds of questions. When we ask those kinds of questions, we are asking for knowledge. Knowledge that is usually reserved for the Lord himself. Instead, James says in verse 5, we should ask for wisdom. It takes wisdom to see our trials the way James has just described in verses 2 through 4. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything new when I say that's not a natural perspective. Verses 2 through 4, what we just read in verses 2 through 4, that is not a natural perspective. It is a spiritual perspective. So we should ask for the wisdom to grow to maturity through our trial. If we pray for the wisdom to grow to maturity through our trial, and if we pray for the wisdom to walk through the trial in a way that honors the Lord, we are promised that God gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to Him. Let me say that in a, in a way that maybe we can relate to better. God doesn't get irritated when His children come before Him to ask Him, for these things. On the contrary, we are promised that he will give liberally. Verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, 
For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We have the potential to be like this when we are going through trials. We have the potential to be double-minded and unstable. Let me explain what I mean. On the one hand, we want to please and honor the Lord through our trials. On the other hand, We just want out of the trial regardless. Does that describe anyone here? On the one hand, we want the wisdom to walk through the trial in a way that results in growth and maturity. On the other hand, we don't care about growth and maturity because we just want what is easy and comfortable in life. That's double-mindedness. That's not the way a child of God should live. Instead, we need to refocus And remember that God is committed to our growth and spiritual maturity. We should be committed to it also. Now James is not the only New Testament writer to address the subject of trials. So did the Apostle Peter. So let's turn to the very next book of the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Please follow along as I read verses 3 through 9, though our focus will be on verses 6 through 9, having already looked at verses 3, 4, and 5 last Lord's Day. But to get the full picture of the context in our minds, follow along as I begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, You have been grieved or distressed by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As we see in this text we just read, Peter wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were suffering. They were going through, to use Peter's terms, various trials. Therefore, his goal was to encourage them and strengthen them to continue moving forward in their walk with the Lord. One of the ways he sought to do this was to help them get their eyes off their present struggles and focused on their future hope. We saw that in the last message when we looked at verses 3 through 5. There he reminded the believers that we have an inheritance that is securely preserved in heaven. 
Our inheritance is incorruptible. It is undefiled. It is unfading. Peter just piles up words to try to emphasize this point. And not only is our inheritance securely guarded in heaven, we are guarded here on earth. We are kept by the power of God, Peter says in verse 5, which guarantees that we will receive our inheritance. This double protection, our inheritance guarded in heaven and us guarded here on the earth, this double protection is reason for great joy. So Peter adds verse 6. He says, in this, what he's just been talking about, the fact that our inheritance is secure and we are secure, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved or distressed by various trials. Yes, life can be very hard. It can be very distressing. It can be very grievous. But if we maintain our focus, we can, as Peter says here, rejoice greatly. We can rejoice that our inheritance is protected and we are protected. But, on the other side of that coin... This doesn't mean that we never experience grief or distress. Beloved, do not assume. Do not make the major mistake of assuming that joy and sorrow are mutually exclusive. They are not mutually exclusive, contrary to what so many Christians think. They are not mutually exclusive. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, said the prophet Isaiah. And yet, when he was about to leave his disciples on his final night with them in the upper room, he told them that he wanted to leave them his joy. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who says, I want you to have my joy. Joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. That is why Peter wasn't hesitant to say that they were greatly rejoicing, but also experiencing grief or distress. What was the source of their sorrow? (coughs) Peter says here it was various trials, manifold trials. In other words, trials in life can take many forms. It could be sickness, It could be financial difficulty. It could be loss of some kind, difficult relationships, disappointment, many, many other things. That list is by no means exhaustive. It it is a trials take various forms, many different forms. And life is full of various trials. In fact, they are necessary. Don't miss the little words here in verse 6 if necessary or if necessary need be, or as the NIV translates it, you may have had to suffer grief. Have had to suffer grief. Those expressions remind us that trials have a divine purpose. It is consoling to know that God's people are never needlessly afflicted. Beloved, did you hear that? We are never needlessly afflicted. Or another way to say it would be to say that God doesn't waste our 
suffering. He doesn't waste our pain. He doesn't waste our hurts. God brings good out of trials. Furthermore, Peter reminds us that these trials are not everlasting when he uses the phrase here in verse 6, for a little while. When compared to eternity, our trials are only for a little while. That's why Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's a remarkable verse. Because Romans 8.18 says that we suffer. It It doesn't diminish that. It doesn't discount that fact. It acknowledges that we suffer. But it says if you're going to start comparing your sufferings with eternal glory... It's not worth comparing. No comparison. Compared to eternity, our trials are only for a little while. But that doesn't mean they are easy. It doesn't mean they are trivial. It doesn't mean they are insignificant. Sometimes our trials are merely a hassle. Flat tire on the car. This breaks down. Sometimes they're just a hassle. And other times they are extremely painful. Physically painful. Emotionally painful. The word that Peter uses here in verse 6 means to be sad, sorrowful, distressed, to grieve, and even to weep. Life's hurts, many of life's hurts, aren't just superficial. They're not just on the surface. Sometimes they are very, very deep And the hurts are profound. But we don't have to let those hurts steal our joy. And we can even allow the experiences to encourage our hearts when we have the right perspective. So Peter adds verse 7. He says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials have a way of demonstrating the authenticity of our faith. When we see God's strength in the midst of our trials, when we see God's grace in our lives as we walk through trials, that is a great encouragement to us because it demonstrates the genuineness of our faith. Trials can hurt us and wound us, and grieve us, and knock us, and shake us. But watch this. Trials can't steal our faith. This was the case with Job. He was hurt, and grieved, and devastated, and confused, but he never shook his fist at God. In fact, in Job 13, 15, he said, Though he slay me, Yet will I trust him. Beloved, sometimes that's the only thing we know to do. That's that's the only response that we know to give. We, We are hurting and confused and devastated and perplexed. A word that Paul used about himself in his own trials, perplexed. But we simply say, I don't understand why God is allowing this, but I trust that he knows what he is doing. That is a a demonstration of genuine faith. And according to the Holy Spirit here, it is priceless. 
That's why Peter says, being much more precious than gold that perishes. The fire of adversity tries our faith and tests our faith and shakes our faith, but it can't take our faith away from us. In the end, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, our faith will be shown to be genuine, and according to this verse, that will honor, glorify, and praise our Savior Jesus Christ. He will be glorified because it is His strength and His grace that enables us to persevere through trials. That's another of the many reasons why we love Him. So Peter adds verse 8. He says, Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. In fact, this may be my very favorite. I love the way Peter words this statement here. His readers, like us, had never seen the Lord Jesus. Peter, of course, had seen Jesus for three years. Peter walked with him, talked with him. He spent three years with him. But by the time Peter wrote this letter, Jesus had been back in heaven for over 30 years, maybe close to 40 years. So these believers had never seen the Lord. Yet Peter affirms three great realities about their relationship with the Lord. He says they loved him, they believed him, and they rejoiced because of him. Isn't that neat? This mirrors our experience with the Lord. This this mirrors our walk with the Lord. We've never seen Him, but we love Him. We love Him because we know from His Word that He loved us first. He loved us and gave Himself for us, according to Ephesians 5.25. He died to redeem us. He died to forgive us. He died to bring us into a relationship with Him. We love Him. We love Him more than we love any of our earthly relationships as dear as they are to us. We love Him supremely. We also believe Him. We've never heard Him speak, but we've heard Him in the pages of Scripture. We've heard His voice in that way, and we believe Him. We believe what He has taught, and we believe what He has promised. We believe what He has claimed. We believe everything He ever said. We've never seen Him, and we've never heard Him, but we believe Him. We also, thirdly, rejoice because of Him. We rejoice in His love for us. We rejoice in His death for us. We rejoice in His care for us. We rejoice in His provision for us. We rejoice in His promises to us. In fact, Peter says here, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In other words, our joy is so full sometimes that we don't even know how to express it. We don't even know how to capture it in words or in experience. We've never seen the Lord Jesus But we love Him, we believe Him, and we rejoice because of Him. This is what we can experience now in life, in this present time, and the best is yet to come. 
So Peter adds verse 9. He says, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Beloved, the day is coming when our salvation will be complete. We've experienced part of it now, but there is more to come. We've been transformed within, and we've been forgiven. We've been made new, but we're still encased in this same sinful body. We still battle the vestiges of sin remaining in our flesh. So we long for the day when Jesus will return, because then we'll be new completely. The Apostle Paul expressed this longing in a couple different passages. Romans 8.23 says, Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, now listen to this word, groan within ourselves, yearn within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Can you relate to that statement? I hope you can. I hope there is a yearning in your heart a groaning for this. Do you find yourself groaning in anticipation of getting a new body? Some of you say, yes, every morning when I wake up. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. It's not that we want a new body simply to get rid of our aches and our pains and, and all of that. We want a new body because then we'll never sin again. We'll never grieve the Lord again. We'll never have to claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9 again. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We'll never have to claim that promise again. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body. One of the reasons why we are so eager for Jesus to return is because then our bodies will be transformed. And once our bodies are transformed, we will never battle sin again. As Christians, we are new creations in Christ. We are a new person, but we still battle the fallenness of our sinful flesh. Call it what you want to call it. Christians debate this. You know, is this the old nature, the sin nature, the, all of those terms? Call it what you want to call it. But every honest Christian knows that he or she still battles sinful tendencies. We're new. We're forgiven. We're transformed. We still battle sinful tendencies. And one day Jesus will complete our redemption by making our bodies new so that our bodies finally match the new condition of the inner person. And what a glorious day that will be. This is what Peter is referring to here at the end of verse 9 when he talks about receiving the end of your faith, the, the culmination, the completion, the salvation of your souls. In one sense, our souls have already been saved but the completion is yet to come. The fullness is yet to come. And we don't have to worry that something might happen that would cancel us from receiving the completion. Peter has already said that to us back in verse 5, 
verses 4 and 5. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, where he says, We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And how long does this guarantee last? The very next phrase in Ephesians 1.14 says, Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Beloved, you and I have been purchased. And we are sealed and guaranteed until the redemption of this purchased possession. This seal, this guarantee will last until Jesus completes the redemption of those whom he has purchased. He purchased us with his blood and he has made us new within. It is absolutely certain that that he will complete the transaction by making us fully new within and without. That's what Peter is saying here. We will receive the end. We will receive the goal. We We will receive the outcome of our faith. There is no doubt about it. And that is why we can rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That is why we can rejoice even when we are grieving from our painful trials. We walk by faith, not by sight. We've never seen Jesus, but by faith we believe Him and we love Him, and the day will come when we will see Him. So, beloved, hold on until that day. The day is coming when we will see Him as He is. Be faithful. Walk by faith and show forth the genuineness of your faith, which is more valuable than gold. Let's bow as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes so you're not distracted by any movement around you, Peter says, Our faith is much more valuable than gold. Therefore, he exhorts us to walk by faith, show forth the genuineness of that faith. And so I ask you this morning, do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Have you placed faith in Jesus Christ? What are you trusting in for your salvation? What are you trusting in for your eternal destiny? If you're trusting in your own goodness, your works, your church membership, your baptism, whatever else people trust in, if you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, you're going to be shockingly surprised and disappointed. Because Jesus said on Judgment Day, He will say to many who hold out their works, Lord, Lord, look at all of this that I've done. He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So I urge you this morning, to make sure that you really know Jesus Christ by faith. And that by faith you're trusting in Him and His work on the cross, not in yourself, in your works, your deeds, your goodness. If you have never received Jesus Christ or if there is any doubt in your mind, then right this moment, right where you are seated, you can receive Jesus Christ by faith. You can humble yourself before the Lord And say, Lord Jesus, I do want you to come into my life and forgive my sins. I want you to take me and make me the man, the woman you want me to be. I want your forgiveness. I want your salvation. I urge you to surrender to the Lord today if you've never done so. Father, thank you for the encouragement from this passage we have considered. It certainly 
reflects or mirrors our own walk with you, our experience. Having never seen the Lord Jesus, yet we by faith believe him and we love him. And we know the day will come when we will see him. So we want to be faithful until that day, however long it is. We want to walk through life with perseverance. We want to walk through life with endurance, being faithful, staying on track until the day we stand face to face before your Son and our Savior. And in closing, we want to pray for anyone who is here with us this morning who does not know your Son personally as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit grant understanding so that there would be clarity as to what it means to know Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction of sin so that maybe today someone here with us would come to know you, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.